1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Craig Cervillo, the host of the channel. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Susan Carruthers about her excellent new book, The Good Occupation, American Soldiers and the Hazards of Peace, published by Harvard University Press in 2016. Dr. Carruthers, hello and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Well, we like to always begin these interviews with having the author. Tell us a little bit about their background, so if you would be so kind.
0: Sure. So, my background... I've sort of crisscrossed the Atlantic now, so the beginning of my story starts in Scotland where I was born on the west coast in Ayrshire and spent my first 10 years in Scotland, moved to England, that's where I went to school. I went to university there. I started off studying Chinese, but decided after a year and a bit of studying character cards that I really wanted to be a historian. So I switched gears. I have a a first degree in international history. And um, completed my PhD at the University of Leeds. I taught then for nine years at the University of Wales in Aberystwyth. I learnt Welsh very laboriously and then promptly moved to New Jersey where I never spoke Welsh <laughs> in the 15 years that I, I lived there. I taught at Rutgers in Newark. Um, and then just a year ago, I moved back to the United Kingdom. So I now teach history at the University of Warwick, which is in the city of Coventry.
1: And you've written four books. This this one that we're going to talk about today is the latest one, but you, you've written on a diverse range of topics?
0: That's right. I'm, I was hired both at Rutgers and then more recently at Warwick under the rubric of the United States and the world. But my first book was actually about British colonial counterinsurgency. Um, this was back in the early to mid-1990s, so it was before counterinsurgency was was rediscovered again in the crucible of Iraq and Afghanistan. And at the time, that seemed a very esoteric topic, and it was quite a struggle to find anyone who wanted to, to publish the book of my thesis. But I did. Um, and then increasingly, over subsequent years, my, my interests have turned more towards the United States and U.S. relations with the rest of the world. So it, it seems like a good idea to actually move there and, and spend a significant chunk of time really trying to fathom the things that I was researching and writing about by, by immersing myself in, in U.S. culture.
1: So then that, that's a good transition into your current book. Um, I'm really interested to know is how you came up with this topic. Because um, it's a fascinating topic and not something a lot of people have done a lot with. Um.
0: Yes, well, the the origins of the topic and um, some years before I set to work researching and and writing it really stemmed from the the earliest months that I spent living in the United States. So I arrived. Um, brand new teaching at Rutgers in September of 2002, so that was just one year after 9-11. And very clearly in in the first few months that I lived there, um, the Bush administration was in the business of of garnering consent for a looming invasion of of Iraq. And Operation Iraqi Freedom, so-called, was launched during the spring break of of my first year at at Rutgers. So as a historian, and a historian who spent most of her career very firmly lodged in the 1940s and and 50s, I couldn't help but, but notice that Repeatedly, Bush and Condoleezza Rice and others would invoke the histories of post war Germany and Japan. Um, They were clearly in the business of trying to reassure doubters about the wisdom of invading Iraq, that it would actually be quite easy to invade that country. Topple a noxious re- regime and remake it as a pacific and prosperous ally of the United States. So they kept coming back to Germany and Japan in 1945 to try to, to convince people that, that this was something that the United States had done before, occupying countries that were far from democratically inclined and rather swiftly and seemingly rather easily, um, transforming them into model democratic polities. So, like many historians, I, I was quite troubled by that very obviously politicized invocation of history. Um, it didn't seem to me to be a good um, a good guide to to what the United States might expect in Iraq if it did proceed with an invasion. But also as someone who's sort of quite well versed in the, in the 40s and 50s, it, it, without at that point having really studied the occupations in any depth, I just wasn't convinced that it really had been uh, a matter of great ease or beneficence to occupy Germany and Japan and transform them. So I, I had this idea, all sorts of ideas uh, about what was unfolding in, in front of my eyes. Um, but it wasn't until some time later that I really started having finished another book that I started digging in and trying to figure out well how did Americans at the time of these occupations actually make sense of them did they did they think that these were easy ventures or what what was the sort of texture of of those experiments
1: so um if you could just tell the listeners very clearly um what your Centrally trying to do in this book, because um, I think for a lot of Americans, um, they have grown up and do believe this sort of myth of occupation in Germany and Japan, sort of being very linear. You know, we topple the Nazi regime, we fix these countries, and now they are the countries that they are today.
0: Yes. That's- that myth was really my, my starting p- point and as I just said, um the, the myth was on very prominent display in two thousand two, early two thousand and three. So the book is called The Good Occupation, um and that is an ironic title. I had some discussion with the, the publisher about that and, and whether the book title would be understand to to resonate in a more ironic way. But I, I really was was very Committed to that title because I, I wanted it obviously to invoke um, the trope of the good war, and as I'm sure many of your listeners will know, I mean this is the tag that over time is almost invariably given to, to World War Two, but 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 it wasn't always the case, and the, the Good War was the title of a famous oral history of, of that conflict by Studs Tuggle, and. If you look at that book, many of the people that he interviewed uh, were telling him things that that really sort of troubled the idea that participants of of World War II understood it in in very clear moral binaries. So his title itself was a somewhat ironic one, which I think we've all tended to forget and and just sort of reach for that tag to to sort of morally reassure us that that the war, World War II was... um, a straightforwardly um, virtuous enterprise on on the Allied side. So, so with all of that in mind, I, I really wanted to sort of challenge the idea that what happened next, uh, the occupations of, of Axis powers, was a fitting sequel um, and a moral counterpart to the Second World War. So that's the the big idea of the book, to try to complicate and mess up very easy ideas that the occupations were themselves just straightforward exercises in national generosity. Um, If that's the big idea, I I quickly get some down in the weeds trying to look at the everyday experiences of occupation soldiers themselves. So a lot of the book actually is, is rooted very much at the day-to-day
1: uh, level of ordinary people's experience. Yes, and I, I have a lot of questions about the, the day-to-day experience. Um, it was a good way to jump into the sort of nuts and bolts of the book, um, and I'd like to start at the very beginning with the um, School of Military Government um, in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, if you could just explain the makeup of that school, how it was established, um, why it was established in Charlottesville, and then I'll have a few more things i want to ask you about that.
0: Right. Well, I, I think this is probably part of a largely forgotten history that the United States very quickly, and this debate was, was royally FDR's cabinet before the United States even was formally in the war after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, but anticipating that the United States would at some point become a belligerent in the war, American personnel, military and civilian alike, like were already starting to, to cast ahead to, to what would be necessary in, in the aftermath of, of the war. There was a huge debate about um, who would have the primary responsibility for administering Axis territory once it was defeated. Um, And ultimately, that debate was won by the army, by the military. And under the aegis of the Provost Marshal General's office, a school was set up, the School of Military Government that you just mentioned, which had its headquarters at the University of Virginia, at the campus in, in Charlottesville. So the idea was that that officers, uh, army officers, would go there for a four-month-long course of study. And over the course of of those weeks, they would learn basic fundamentals of how you administered defeated people, what was involved in the art of governance, and, and very practical things. They also studied maps of and regions that the US military anticipated would would fall under American military control um, they studied things like the sewage system um, municipal government uh, trying to sort of figure out practical plans for how Americans could more or less seamlessly step in and assume control over those places
1: um, what were the general characteristics of an officer that enrolled in this school um, were they uh, combat veterans or not so much or, you know, older, younger?
0: Well, it's it's a little bit hard to, to generalize. I mean, I think one thing that's important to bear in mind, and this is something that uh, – although i 've written quite a lot about war i hadn 't really written about soldiers in any great detail until I, I wrote this book is you 've got an awkward amalgam between the regular army in other words sort of professional soldiers who may have been in the military for a couple of decades that that is their career of choice and then of course there 's massively and hastily expanded military apparatus that, that that is sort of drawing in millions of Americans into uniform in in 1942, 43, and so on. So at the school, you, you find some tension, I think, between the career army officers, many of whom, at least it was rumored, were, were kind of duds. They weren't uh, good commanders of men in the field. And uh, because the units were, were keen to get rid of them, they were sort of um, bumped off and sent to Charlottesville to, to go and train. So there was that Sort of cohort, if if you like, sort of second rate uh, officers. They, they if they were really you know in their forties or fifties, they they might have had some combat experience from from World War One, but mostly these these because we're talking about the beginning of the war, we're not yet talking about combat seasoned veterans of, of World War Two, But the, the largest demographic that populated the school was drawn from um, the professional ranks of, of the United States. So lawyers, university professors, people who, who already had um, experience in running municipalities and who had very practical skills in, in engineering or in Figuring out how you made train systems work, things like that. So it was it was a rather mixed bag um, in general. I would say men tended to be in their late thirties, forties. Um, so you know we're, we're talking about cohorts of, of 150 men at a time, um, which expanded over the course of the war.
1: Um, you mentioned in the book as well that th- this school was was actually a little bit controversial. Um, that there were there were some both on the left and the right that um, were leery before leery about occupation before it even began, and they even used the the German term, you know, the American Gauleiters, um, yeah. sort of invoking Nazi Germany's system. Um, and if you could, mm. can you explain why this was so controversial and 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 why there was initially a lot of leery feelings about occupation even before it even started?
0: Yes, absolutely. So you're quite right. I mean, uh, I would just Uh, tweak what you said minimally it wasn't a little bit controversial it it was extremely controversial and and the the use of the term Gauleiters to invoke the the sort of uh, Wehrmacht overlords of Nazi occupied Europe was entirely intentional and this this was on the part of papers like the Chicago Tribune um, which were isolationist by orientation obviously sort of belated and rather grudging converts to the idea that the United States was in fact going to be an active uh, participant in in the war. So for for isolationist conservatives, the objection to the school of military government was the idea that the United States was going to play an ongoing interventionist role in in world affairs. And so the Tribune repeatedly um, decried Charlottesville, suggesting that this was an outrageous idea that that thousands or tens of thousands of American troops would occupy anywhere. This was contrary to our American um, traditions, which in, in their lives, of course, were, were that the United States sort of remained aloof from engagement with the rest of the world. So uh, papers of, of that were really strongly signaling that they felt that once the war was was over, as soon as combat had ended, that Americans in uniform ought to be hastily demobilized, brought back to the United States, and that the US had really returned to what they regarded as its as sort of traditional and appropriate role, giving um, itself to itself. So. That was the conservative objection, but on the other end of the political spectrum, uh, progressive liberals were equally concerned, and and their view was that the United States um, had a proud and certainly so ought to sustain a, a proudly anti-imperialist tradition. After all, you know, going back into the, the sort of far depths of US national history, obviously, America's prided itself on an idea of, of its anti colonial lineage. What differentiates the United States from Europe, um, at, at least in that imagination, is that the United States was never a sort of thoroughgoing colonial power. And so for, for people on the left, the idea that American military personnel would be occupying places. Came dangerously close to uh, an idea of, of imperial rule over those territories, so it was equally controversial from from that end of, of the sort of political spectrum too.
1: Yeah, um, typical. No one happy. <laughs> um.
0: No one No, no, no one very happy. Yeah. And of course, a lot of this this thinking was very fuzzy. I mean, that FDR himself, who sort of famously. Um, uh, was reluctant to be drawn into hard and fast plans, and seemed at different times it was not one camp and then and then another was was running very much true to form on on all of these questions himself.
1: Hmm. Um, all right, so we will we will move over to Europe and Japan now. Um, in the okay. in the following two chapters, after the the one about the school, you talk about the initial stages of defeat both in Germany and Japan. Uh, I'm wondering if you can talk about that. Um, just very briefly, and then, you know, a little bit about early occupation, how messy it was, um, and so on, and then I want to ask some specific questions about things on the ground, but just a general overview, I think, would be helpful.
0: Okay, well, I think the, the first thing I, I would say perhaps, I and mean, if we're specifically talking about the occupation of, of Germany and Japan, is, is that they unfolded really very differently. I mean, we need to bear in mind that I'm sure many of your listeners will be it, Familiar with the German part of this story that the, the the defeat of Germany was a long protracted business as the various allied armies encroached from both the east and the west from 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 various different angles and, and over the course of many months, uh, gradually German territory in its entirety was was occupied so this was a very sort of intimate process of land being claimed foot by foot, and of Germans often being displaced f- from their homes. Something that perhaps surprised me a little bit was just how intimate the, the character of occupation was, that American GIs would would sort of take over the homes of, of German civilians, even after this was officially forbidden by their commanding officers, and, and lived often in sort of cheek by jowl proximity. They might Boot out the former owners to an outbuilding or perhaps to the basement, the cellar. But there was a lot of, of sort of personal contact between Americans and Germans, and of course Americans were very keen to try to figure out, decipher from the often stony expressions on German faces what was going through their minds. Um, were they going to resist? And we need to bear in mind that, that many American commanders took very seriously the idea that there was going to be armed German resistance, the idea that there was a, a guerrilla movement, the werewolf movement, uh, poised to sabotage the American military occupation. So in the first instance then, I, I'd say there was a lot of wariness on on both sides, um, commingled with some fraternization, which quickly became a euphemism for another F word, but it, it didn't always connote only that thing. Um, Now, with regard to Japan, we need to bear in mind that that Japan's occupation by the United States happened only after the country was uh, thoroughly defeated and the instrument of of surrender had been signed. So American GIs, um, with the exception of outlying islands like Okinawa, weren't fighting their way um, into Japan. When they landed in Japan proper on the home islands of of Japan, they were encountering people who uh, thoroughly understood themselves to be defeated. And of course, Americans there too were hesitant. Um, they didn't quite know what they might expect, but they very, very quickly, within minutes, literally, of, of, of landing in, in Japan, found a, a thoroughly quiescent population. So um, the process of occupation there wasn't a sort of rolling one as in Germany, but this was a sort of instant arrival of victorious Americans trying to figure out people that they often found totally inscrutable, or certainly implied that stereotype of Japanese unreadability.
1: Um, and you mentioned fraternization in your in your answer, um, and you have a really great chapter about it. Um, you talk about the characteristics of it both in Germany and Japan, um, and talk about how it was frowned upon, and then try, and then they tried to eliminate it, but they probably knew they never really could eliminate it, um, and how this these particular relationships um, sort of impacted occupation and we're entering the nuts and bolts of the chapters of your book and we'll try to get through them um, one at a time because I think they're all really interesting and add important pieces to this story.
0: Okay, well... Um, again, the, the dynamics play out a bit differently in, in Europe and in Asia, but, but the first thing I'd stress in the, the German context is that Eisenhower, supreme commander of the Allied expeditionary force, made a formal ban on fraternization amongst Allied personnel and the German population. So. Uh, what's important to note about that is is that the idea was that that no allied um, military member would have anything to do with the German population, would engage in in no social niceties, um, no uh, sort of civil courtesy, no conversation. And and this was intended uh, very much as a political program to spell out to the Germans that as far as the Allies were concerned, they had really put themselves beyond the pale, um, it, it's important to, to note, I think, that, that the shared, certainly British and American view of Germans was that every single German uh shared a, a, a sort of collective, but also individualized moral responsibility for Nazi atrocity. And because they, they were all guilty of the horrific things that were being uncovered in the extermination concentration camps in the spring of 1945. Eisenhower really wanted to drive home to the Germans that they would not be treated politely, um, that they were going to be cut dead, as it were, by anyone in an Allied uniform. So the fraternization ban wasn't um, intended simply to outlaw sex between GIs and German women. It was intended just to to sort of rule out any kind of um, more friendly encounter between um, the victors and the vanquished. Now, GIs being GIs, everywhere they went, they lost no time in, in sleeping with local women, and they certainly didn't think that nearly because German women until so recently, or arguably still in the moment, were their enemies that that meant that they shouldn't be sleeping with them. So. Within, I would say not days, but hours of arriving on German soil, American soldiers were sleeping with German women. And this became so pervasive that um, bit by bit Eisenhower had to retreat from the ban. Um, it was rather embarrassing that GIs in their droves were sleeping with German women. And worse yet, this was something that was being very publicly um, written about in American newspapers, photographed. You found big photo spreads in Life magazine showing fraternization. And as I, I said before, I mean, quickly that uh, long F word became synonymous with another shorter mm. Anglo-Saxon word. Mm. So I mean this was this was all just um you know very uh troubling for the American command, although of course in some cases they were guilty of the exact same thing. Uh, Eisenhower tried to pass off the abandonment of the rationalization ban by saying that uh, denazification was going so well that Germans were, were so thoroughly embracing the idea of their collective guilt, that they didn't need to be ostracized to the same degree anymore. Uh, but anyone who um, was in any way familiar with the German situation knew that that was just uh, a face-saving mechanism. So um, uh, American GI's continue to, to sleep with German women, and that that is uh, a facet of the occupation throughout. And within months, uh, are marrying German women, even when that's still officially outlawed. But over time, that becomes uh, also permitted by the American military command. So, shall I turn to, to talk about this in uh, the Japanese context uh, as yes, well? Yes, yes, please. Okay, so um, no, in Japan, uh, the the Allied occupation doesn't make any attempt to outlaw fraternization. Um, MacArthur realizes that this is clearly not going to go well, and he doesn't want to be in Eisenhower's position of, of issuing an edict that is is rampantly disregarded by the men under his command. So he he doesn't do that. Um, And in fact, something a little bit different goes on in in Japan as well, because the Japanese imperial government, which is left largely in place, um, I mean, this is something that I think is often misunderstood, we tend to think that Japan engaged in an unconditional surrender. But in fact, um, not only was the emperor left in place, albeit shorn of his divinity, but, but so too were, were many of the, the sort of key personnel in the Japanese government. So whereas in in Germany the whole sort of Third Reich obviously collapsed and, and Americans were governing directly, um, it, it's more of a supervisory role in in Japan. And one thing the Japanese government does to try to placate the American occupiers is to provide them with commercial sex workers or comfort women, um, a, a phrase I, I imagine many of your listeners are, are familiar with. So the Japanese government, um, and this may seem rather mind-boggling from a, a 21st century perspective, the Japanese government actually sets up licensed houses of prostitution as a gift to the American occupiers. And uh, up to a certain point, I would say, the American military command, the Eighth Army, this is the key occupying force, uh, are fairly pleased with this arrangement, thinking that it's it's sort of better to have prostitution regulated. It's easier to uh, police the the commercial sex workers for transmit, sexually transmitted diseases and so on. However, it it does also get rather embarrassing when this too becomes a publicized story in the American press that uh, Americans are enjoying the the, uh, largesse of of the Japanese uh, government. So GIs, again being GIs there too, with or without those licensed houses of of prostitution, quickly go out and and find Japanese women uh, to sleep with. And and that's also a very public part of, of the, the story back in the states about what's going
1: on there. Now you mentioned both Eisenhower and MacArthur sort of had different views on this. Um, was, was this something that the State Department and the War Department or the President act, ever weighed in on, or was this, this these these bans or attempted bans, or, or in MacArthur's case the other way, was it that did that their policies that they weren't consulting people above them, or was there a lot of conversation going on about this in Washington?
0: well certainly with regard to the german case there was conversation going on at the very highest level um i mean f d r responded very badly to, to some pictures that were published in nineteen forty four so when when American troops first encountered germans um in and around Aachen, they were, were sort of pictured in, in convivial scenes with with Germans, and, and not in, in sort of sexual encounters, but um, being entertained, being given meals, and, and so on. And, and that kind of fraternization, when it was was publicized in, in sort of photographic journalism, came to FDR's attention, and, and he came down very hard on, on Eisenhower, that we absolutely can't have photographs like this again. And so that was sort of part of, of the initial emphasis to crack down on any kind of social interaction between GIs and Germans. Uh, I didn't find so much commentary at that level with regard to the Japanese case, perhaps because MacArthur handled this a bit differently and, and decided not to have some official injunction against it. But, but certainly it was a cause for concern back in Washington that, that such rampant um, of sexualization of of the occupation was was going on in both places.
1: And I'm I'm sure they were most displeased about the the pictures and the stories. Um, Probably complicated a little bit the narrative that they were trying to to paint about occupation. Um, Let's turn away from that and uh, talk about displaced persons. Um, This was one of the biggest problems in Europe after the war, the sort of massive Reorganization of populations, um, um. and I'm just wondering if you can explain how Germany experienced this, um, how Americans in Germany dealt with this new influx of of, of persons, um, you know, Germans being expelled from Czechoslovakia and Poland and other places, um, and and how this affected the, the sort of overall arc of occupation.
0: Yes, well. We we have a situation in, in Germany where there are millions and millions of, of, of people in that country who had not lived there before the late 1930s or, or the war years. And I think it's important to differentiate between distinct populations of of people out of place, as it were. So on the one hand, you've got millions of people from East, Central Europe, the Soviet Union, who have been brought into Germany by the Third Reich during the war to to provide replacement labor. As more and more men are drafted into the military. Uh, Farms still need laborers. Factories need workers and so on. And so, uh, millions of East Europeans and, and, and Soviet citizens are brought into Germany to, to provide that labor. And then, by the spring of 1945, they are basically uh, liberated from their indentured servitude and wandering around Germany, trying to get home, um, often taking post-war justice into their own hands in terms of looting Germans' property and, and so on. So, that's one set of displaced people. Uh, and quickly, the Allied military personnel uh, try to deal with that by by finding as, as many train uh, wagons as they can in rolling stock and just shunting off millions of Eastern Europeans and Russians back to their their homelands now secondly, as, as you just mentioned, do you have um, a process playing out in the end of the war and and, and afterwards of people in countries that had been occupied during the war years by the Wehrmacht um, expelling ethnic Germans, whether they'd ever lived in Germany or not. Uh, Germans were now unwelcome in Hungary, and Poland and Czechoslovakia and, and, and points east. So those millions of ethnic Germans are also coming back into Germany um, and, and find themselves desperately looking for somewhere to live. And then lastly, the smallest group of of displaced persons are those um, those European Jews who who managed to survive calculated genocide, um, either in hiding in Germany or or in neighbouring countries, uh, some who survived the camp experience and and made it out alive in 1945, and then others who had spent the war years in. In the Soviet Union or, or further afield. So by early 1946, uh, we find there are about a quarter of a million Jewish survivors who are in the U.S. occupation zone of, of Germany. So what all of that adds up to is this sort of tremendous uh, maelstrom of people looking for somewhere that they might call home or looking for somewhere further afield that, that could serve as, as, as that sort of uh, secure haven.
1: Hmm. Um, and, and what were some of the strategies or plans that American occupiers had in place to deal with um, this massive movement of people? And and how did, did ordinary soldiers sort of deal with it? Was it... Did they... What kind of problems did they run into on sort of a, on a local level?
0: Well, I, I think in, in terms of the plans, um... Obviously, it it, it was anticipated that there would be a massive refugee crisis in in the wake of the war, and um, the international body that that was constructed to deal with that was called UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Agency. So that was a civilian organization, but it was very heavily dependent on on US military personnel and, and material, food supplies, clothes, and so on. Now, the, the biggest sort of strategy that that UNRWA was was tasked with, and that the military helps to to institutionalise, is, as I suggested before, is simply sending people back where they've come from. So, um, that that is, I would say, the the largest guiding policy. It is a very straightforward one that that if people are out of place, then the obvious mechanism to resolve that is simply to to send them back where they belong. And and that works reasonably well up to a point with regard to the forced laborers who've been brought from from the Soviet Union and, and East Central Europe, except that hundreds of thousands or indeed a couple of million of those people have no desire to head back to the USSR, fearing that life is going to be pretty nasty for them if if they get back. Um, So so the idea that you would simply repatriate people, it's it's a nice policy on paper, but it it quickly starts to unravel. I would say with regard to Jewish survivors of the Holocaust, there was rather less planning, in part that perhaps because um, the Allies had not been certain how large a a Jewish population would survive uh, Nazi genocide. So the mechanism in that case is really to to turn, in some cases, former camps, and this may seem astonishing to us, but in some cases, former Nazi concentration camps overnight uh, are rebranded, as it were, and become camps for, for displaced persons. Um, so in, in terms of your question about the kinds of interactions between American personnel and refugees and displaced persons, I think often they were quite fractious. Um, and this is something, the degree to which that was so, I think, maybe surprised and and troubled me because we we might hope to find that American personnel were were profoundly sympathetic to the awful, agonizing predicament of anyone who managed to survive the Holocaust. But often, in fact, I found that, that Americans were troubled by Holocaust survivors in particular. They were troubled by how needy they seemed to be, how aggressive they were. They tended to think that people who needed help ought to have been meek and grateful and they ought to have been thoroughly pliant to the sorts of disciplinary arrangements that the Americans put in place. And when they encountered people who were quite assertive about stating what they wanted and who had a very, a, a very sort of fully fleshed out political vision of where they wanted to be, which in many cases was Palestine, uh, this did not play out well on the ground. So what I found from, from reading my sources, letters and diaries and so on was that often the relationships uh, were really quite fraught, hostile. Uh, not always, of course. I mean, there were some American GIs who were wholly sympathetic to the people that they interacted with. But that certainly wasn't a, a universal story.
1: Yeah, I was, I, was, I was struck by that as well. That um, I mean, it, it seems obvious that in a high-stress situation there would be, would be conflict um but um, you know, you don't necessarily think of those relationships as being um, so difficult. Um, I want to ask now about something that probably happens in all occupations. Um, it's the vibrant black market that starts to mm. crop up. Um, of course, there's a shortage of goods. everybody needs stuff, wants stuff. We um, could talk about, how the black market sort of emerges and operates in the two locales, Um, and then I'll I'll ask you some follow-ups.
0: Yes, I I think you're right that that black markets, Um, are probably a a facet of occupation anywhere and and everywhere, Mm trans-historically. And and something else I would add to that as well is is that the black markets were also uh, very pronounced features of of wartime society in both Germany and Japan and and many other places. And Britain suddenly had a vibrant black market and and no doubt in the United States where gas was rationed, you found people doing shady deals to to get more stuff that they they wanted. So uh, this is one of, of... through many occasions where we we need to sort of remember that there wasn't a stark break between war and then this other phase of of, mm. of life that we call post-war, there was quite a lot of continuity. But but you're also right that the, the black markets were were really extremely pronounced features of society in in both of those two defeated Axis powers that I predominantly look at in the book, and, and I think you've got a couple of of different things that contribute to that. Um, So you've got, obviously, economies of of real scarcity that that Japan, to an even degree, greater degree than Germany was a place that had been absolutely stripped bare by the wartime state to find anything and everything that could be turned into material for the war effort. So people have very little, they have very little food, they have very little stuff. Um, Every piece of cultivatable land is being turned over into sort of gardens, plots for for vegetables and so on. Um, in Germany, by contrast, you have a more affluent population. You have people who, who still, in in some cases, if their homes hadn't been bombed to smithereens, have some material possessions. So, in, into this this sort of mix of of, of people um, with very little of anything in Japan, people perhaps still with heirlooms, family possessions in Germany, uh, you have the world's best. Ever fed and equipped army. So, I mean, this is something that, that we clearly need to bear in mind about the occupation personnel that the United States was fielding, was that n- never before in history had soldiers been so well looked after. Americans were very well fed, far and, uh, above the, the level of any other military on, on either side of, of, of the divide. Um, they had uh, access to increase, increasingly lavishly stocked. PXs, sort of department store-like places where they could buy things cheaply, um, and that's not just food and drink, but clothing, uh, watches, and all sorts of consumer goods were accessible to, to military personnel very cheaply. So, of course, they can they can barter these things. They're not allowed to, strictly speaking, but as we saw from the fraternisation ban. Um, In the military, it seems to me a very interesting organization where discipline and indiscipline often exist in a very precarious kind of equilibrium. So everywhere GIs go, they're they're sort of frantically bartering their stuff for something else. Whether it's access to women's bodies or whether it's access to fresh vegetables or local produce, local beer or or, or what have you. So the black market, those barter arrangements are a key part of everyday life in in, in post-war societies.
1: I mean, you mentioned that they were, that these kinds of uh, deals were Sort of banned, um, but did, did was there ever a serious crackdown, an attempt to seriously crack down on on the part of their commanders, um, or was this just something that oh you're not supposed to do, but we're not really going to notice, we're not really going to look?
0: Well, I, I would say that there were certainly serious attempts to try to crack down on 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 these practices. Um, However, those serious attempts were complicated for a few reasons. Um, so, for example, it, it was only possible for the occupying authorities to introduce their own kind of script um, to try to make sure that Americans weren't trading in in local currency, they could certainly announce that Americans were not going to be allowed to mail home certain things. So you wouldn't be able to amass uh, 25 Samurai swords and and send them home to New Jersey or or, or wherever. And and yet, I mean, clearly GIs, they were quite ingenious. So they they found ways of persisting in in, in these practices. Um, And I'm sure the rules were unevenly enforced. This seemed to be a, a sort of theme of every aspect of occupation mm. I looked at. But clearly, some commanding officers took a more moral view of, of what their role was, was intended to be than, than others. And of course, it didn't help when it came to enforcement that, that some officers were actually the worst offenders mm. in, in terms of, of kind of pilfering. So I have a little story in in the relevant chapter of, of the book where I talk about the, the looting of the crown jewels. Um, mm-hmm in in uh, in um Hesse. I mean, these were sort of sent home and, and found at a, a train station locker in, in Chicago. I mean, phenomenal quantities mm. of precious stones, a, a Bible inscribed by Queen Victoria mm. to her granddaughter. I mean, all of this stuff in a, in a locker mm-hmm. <laughs> in an American railway station. So clearly um, uh, the checks on, on the military mail system in, in that case, and I'm sure others as well, did, did not work very well.
1: Mm um that's a it's a good uh place to diverge to my next question um you do a really interesting job in the book of 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 drawing comparisons between sort of officers and enlisted men and how they experience occupation you know african american soldiers, how they experience it being over there you know jewish Americans and so forth uh, can you talk a little bit about officer versus enlisted men and then about the diversity um of American soldiers and how they experienced um Experienced this occupation, you know they. You do make the case they all got grumpy, Um, but we'll 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 start there and then we'll 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 move on.
0: Okay, so yes, um, officers and enlisted men. Well. Obviously, you know, we need to bear in mind when we're talking about 16 million or so people in uniform that, that, that it's a little unwise to generalize too much. Sure, sure. Uh, I, I, and I, I guess the other thing I, I would say also is, is to bear in mind that there were often extreme tensions between, amongst officers themselves, between the regular army folk and, and the ones who had joined up for the duration, who, who, uh, in some cases, had no more time for um, matters of of sort of rank and hierarchy than did it many of the enlisted men. So the divisions aren't um, entirely sort of cleanly made along lines of of, of rank. But but something that I, I certainly did find as as the first few months of the occupation wore on, not surprisingly, that the, the Overwhelming imperative of millions of men in uniform and women who were serving overseas was to get home. And when could they get home? Because that's to them what the end of the war meant was that, you know, this is the moment when they could shed their uniform and go home again. Finally, in having been overseas in some cases for two or three years. So I think I would say that piece of the context that the relations, broadly speaking, between officers and enlisted men fray because Many enlisted men uh, become increasingly, um, increasingly reluctant to, to be disciplined or to meekly accept that their lot in life is to become an occupation soldier for months or possibly years. So, that I think is, is another, to, to me, really interesting piece of this story. That, that um, we were so familiar with the greatest generation, the idea that, that this generation of, of Americans in uniform gladly sacrificed and sort of cheerfully went toward knowing that theirs was a moral cause. Well without, of course, wishing to disparage anyone who who, uh, who, who donned the uniform and, and, and engaged in World War II on the U.S. side. What was very clear in the weeks and months after the war ended was that most Americans just desperately wanted to get home. And they were very vocal about it. So... Perhaps rather extraordinary to to our way of thinking, by January of 1946, hundreds of thousands of Americans in uniform, wearing their uniform, take to the streets demanding um, that they should be demobilized instantly. And that if anywhere is to be occupied, given that by now the Germans and Japanese have, have proved Thoroughly amenable to being occupied. It's clear there's not going to be any guerrilla resistance, no sabotage, none of those worst case scenarios. So these men are sort of protesting. We want to go home now. If Washington insists on an occupation, we'll let some new 19 year olds be, be drafted and sent off. So, you know, basically for a kind of gap year <laughs> study abroad experience, if you like. So I think that's a really pivotal piece of the story to bear in mind, just how much fractiousness there is because so many people just desperately, desperately want to get out of uniform and go home. And it's very hard to blame them for, for feeling that way. Um, But in response to that, I think many of the professional senior officers uh, have an increasingly dim view of enlisted men. And they they tend to think that both the men who are protesting or the the, the young ones who are then drafted in to to flesh out the uh, increasingly depopulated ranks of occupation soldiers are pretty uh, poor soldiers indeed. And I hadn't really expected that, just how biting uh, their critique of of their own men often was.
1: Um, Did this make it um, very difficult for sort of the middle officers, the lieutenants, the captains, the ones that had to sort of deal with the enlisted men and deal with the senior officers? Did this put them in a position that that made sort of their lives really difficult?
0: Yeah, I think think it often did. And and quickly, responding to all of these pressures, we find that uh, perhaps the the largest departure from anything that was originally envisioned in Washington is the idea that that wives and and families will be brought over to try to sort of tamp down some of this indiscipline, the dissatisfaction of of men of being kept away from their families for so long, and and, and so uh, attempting to, to sort of reconcile all of these raw feelings by um, creating a more domestic kind of setting for occupation and, and perhaps those, those in the ranks that you've alluded to were, were perhaps the, the key targets of, of that initiative. Mm. Um,
1: I want to ask you very quickly about your use of sources. Um, your footnotes are very, are very, very thorough um, and you have lots of great sources. So I'm just wondering if you could just talk for a few minutes about the sort of things that you read Um, and looked at to write this book.
0: Sure. And as I do that, I I will circle back to the second part of your question, which I I realize now that I I didn't address, which was about um, the fact that uh, one of the things I try to do in the book is also show that uh, these Americans weren't just fractured by by rank and status in in the military. There were also obviously differences of of generation. Um, I tried to find as many women, uh, wax and and women out of uniform as I could to flesh out the story. And and also they were, were obviously. Divided in some case by ethnicity and, and race, so the fact that I really wanted to tell as multifaceted a set of stories as possible meant that I I, I went to a lot of archives. I, I tried really hard to to find those voices and those stories. Um, so, for example. Um, there's a, a great collection of oral histories at, at the Schomburg Library, um, which is the branch of the New York Public Library that deals with African-American history up in Harlem. Um, I was eager to find as many enlisted men's stories as possible. So um, the Army's Military History Institute at, at Carlisle in Pennsylvania was was a really rich place to to find um, Just the the sort of everyday letters of lower ranking soldiers as well as as men in more senior ranks. Um, I went over to California to um, the Hoover Institution at Stanford where there there tended to be more material there about the occupations in, in Asia. Um, and all together I sort of tallied up that I'd been to about thirty different archives in fifteen or so states. So for me as a as a you know, I, I lived in the States for fifteen years, but it was a great way to get to see a lot of the country by just sort of tracking down different collections, even quite small ones, to, to get an angle that I, I hadn't yet been able to, to find elsewhere.
1: Yeah, no So most sorry. Oh no no, please continue. I... Yeah.
0: Well, I, I was just going to sort of add a, a sort of final sentence or two to that, but the, the stuff I most wanted when I was just traveling around was really um, the letters and, and diaries of those men and women, so um, oral histories also, but, but, but unpublished sources that would help me uh, get a better read of, of what, what kind of stories they were telling themselves. They were telling wives, girlfriends, mothers, siblings back home about what it was that they were doing in these places and how they were making sense of this job that so many of them really desperately didn't want.
1: Yeah, I just I just wanted to say that the, the footnotes are really are really excellent for anybody who, who wants to know where all this stuff comes from because you really you really do have a wide breadth of, of things that you take into account and I, I think that's why I wanted to ask you about it because I was I was very impressed by the amount of uh, amount of things that you looked at to put this story together. Um, as a way to wrap up discussion of your book, would um, leave the listeners with one or two things um, that you would like them to take away from your book? Big, big picture.
0: Mm. Well, I, I think this takes us back uh, more or less to, to where we began with the the, the mythic good occupation. So I, I guess the key thing that I hope readers would, would come away with is... Uh, Sense that occupation is a really, really hard undertaking for. for Anyone and everyone involved. Uh, one thing that, that some historians and certainly political scientists have, have postulated about the, the occupations of Germany and Japan is that this is occupation under optimal conditions, and, and by that they mean that the countries that are totally and utterly defeated, as Germany and Japan both were by by 1945. Um, And where populations understand that they have utterly lost the war, there is no reversing the military verdict of of, of battle, that, that what happens next is something that has to be endured. And and from a certain point of view, in in terms of the ease with which an occupying power can establish law and order, assert their authority, governance, and so on, that that, that 1945 in those Axis countries is the the best condition in in which to undertake an occupation. Uh, and, And that, I think, is on the one hand true, but also a very sobering thing to take in uh, the, the the best condition for occupation is where countries are are really thoroughly ruined, where millions of people are, are homeless, where where everything has really, in in some ways, in terms of governance, just ground to a halt. Um, So I think that's something I would want people to grasp, and I suppose that we get back to 2002-2003 about whether Germany and Japan could ever possibly have provided a good prognosis for what Iraq might look like. I mean, these are just two wildly different situations, and here we have people who were thoroughly, thoroughly defeated and knew it. And yet still on the ground, the relationships between occupiers and occupied, although sometimes they're they're amicable, are just sort of fraught with these huge disparities of power, of access to stuff of every sort, and so on. So we're dealing with multiple shades of of gray, this sort of great moral complexity of occupation and people all of whom, I mean, if we're talking about the American occupation, soldiers and not just millions of the people that they counted are out of place, out of joint, and trying to figure themselves out with regard to one another.
1: Um, well, uh, well said. Um, before I ask you one final thing, I just want to say to everybody listening, this is a wonderful book. Um, I would definitely re- recommend picking it up and reading it. Um, you, you learn a, a lot Um Way more things than even we could get to in this conversation, Um, but before I let you go, I sort of want to know: What are you um, now that this project is done and it's on the shelves? um, What are you working on now?
0: Well, my new project is is uh, deeply fascinating to to me at least, Um, and as I just hinted at, I got very drawn into soldiers' letters and and diaries. and thinking about their relationships and, and, and certainly something that to, to us in the 21st century is now a, a thing of the pre-digital past, which is what it takes to sustain a relationship by pen and ink alone over continents and years. Um and how often relationships also strained by war, strained by distance and danger, didn't make it. So my new book project is about the Dear John letter in American military culture. So I'm really looking at how romantic relationships uh, fail in some cases to survive and the kinds of letters that terminate those relationships and, and how men and women have, have, have dealt with love and its loss in wartime.
1: Well, no pressure. When, when finished the book. Um, I would love to have you back on to talk about it. It sounds like a fascinating project. I want to thank Susan um, very much for agreeing to be on the show today. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you. I hope you enjoyed talking to us. I also want to thank everybody for listening to New Books in German Studies, um, and we will see you all next time.